2: Of course, that is the music of reading books. I don't really know that that's true, but it um, doesn't really sound like the music of reading books, but maybe it is anyway. We're talking about novels today. Let me just once again kind of uh, set the scene for you or, or establish the history for you. So there's this online publication that we like very much called The Morning News, and every year they do this thing called the Tournament of Books. It has as its symbol a rooster, Um, And what they do is they take 16 pieces of literary fiction, although I guess a little bit more now because there's a play in round or something, but so maybe 17 or 18 works of literary fiction from the previous year. And they set them up on what looks like a NCAA bracket. And then they have them contend with one another for supremacy. And it's, you know, obviously all kind of ridiculous and not to be taken all that seriously. uh, So it's exactly the kind of thing that we enjoy. Uh, And so we started doing it sort of with them. But we discovered a few things. One of them is that 16 books or more is just a lot for anybody to try to read. And we even sort of thought that in terms of keeping you, the audience, involved, maybe with enough warning, you could read one or two or three or four of four books. But four books is a lot. So we, so we scaled it down. We're doing our own version of it. And, and I also felt that – well, we'll get to that. Um, let me tell you, first of all, who's here? Who's here is always who's here when we do this. Rand Richards Cooper, uh, a novelist, essayist, essayist and critic. Uh, Alex Dubin, a writer who frequently complains that the show spends too much time on television and not on books. That's like your whole biography on the show now. That has become my biography. It's his identity. Right. Uh, (laughs) Julia Pastel, who comes to the studio every day to see if she's on a show. It turns out today she is. She's a writer and founding member of C.T. Improv. and She hosts the Literary Disco Podcast, which we absolutely uh, encourage you to go find after this because you'll be so energized about books. Were any of the four books – Featured here? Featured ever on Literary Disco?
3: They weren't yet. uh, We don't really focus that much on new books, so this is a nice, refreshing uh, change for me.
2: All right. So um, Mm -hmm. what we're going to do, we actually have sort of set these four books on this incredibly puny bracket. (laughs) Um, And uh, so it's going to be obviously a pulse pounding excitement here to see which one. Yeah, we we are having a final four. We're having a final four without all the messy precursors. Um, So uh, we're going to begin with Michael Chabon's uh, Moonglow versus Colson Whitehead's uh, The Underground Railroad. Is it? The Underground Railroad, or Underground Railroad? Oh, it is Me. the Underground. I I, I asked this because uh, if you look at the, um, the the actual tournament that's run by in the morning news, um, they're very the-friendly, books that begin with <laughs> the, like mm. The Road, The Accidental, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. There's a lot of the, so it's good to have a the. There's only two the books in our final four draw here. So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Moonglow and, and Underground Railroad. They will be fiercely competing against one another uh, in this conversation. Uh, blood will be drawn. And um, and then we'll sort of move one of them into the final round. So um, we'll start with – am I saying it right? You, Rand, you would know this. Do you say Michael Chabon? Chabon. Chabon. Michael Chabon. See, that's like a basic thing I could have gotten, right? Um, and let's actually hear a little bit. I think we're going to hear the beginning
1: of the audio book of Moonglow. This is how I heard the story. When Alger Hiss got out of prison – he had a hard time finding a job. He was a graduate of Harvard Law School, had clerked for Oliver Wendell Holmes, and helped charter the United Nations. Yet he was also a convicted perjurer and notorious as a tool of international communism. He had published a memoir, but it was dull stuff and no one wanted to read it. His wife had left him. He was broke and hopeless. In the end, one of his remaining friends took pity on the bastard and pulled a string. His was hired by a New York firm that manufactured and sold a kind of fancy beret made from loops of piano wire. Feather Combs, Incorporated had gotten off to a good start, but had come under attack from a bigger competitor that copied its designs, infringed on its trademarks, and undercut its pricing. Sales had dwindled. Payroll was tight. In order to make room for hiss, somebody had to be let go. In an account of my grandfather's arrest in the Daily News for May 25, 1957, he is described by an unnamed co-worker as the quiet type. To his fellow salesman at Feathercombs, he was a Homburg on the coat rack in the corner. All right, so... um. That's the beginning
2: of the novel. You're introduced to uh, Michael Shevin's uh, grandfather. Uh, he is going to be, or he, you're introduced to somebody's grandfather. And Rand, maybe we can just begin there. One of the things that makes this book either interesting or problematic, depending on how you feel about it, is it is just sitting on a knife's edge somehow between fiction and memoir. Can you say a little bit more about that?
4: You know, as I was reading it, uh, and I hadn't read much about the book beforehand. Um, and and I was aware that it was unclear to me. You know, I'm halfway through the book, and it was unclear to me whether I was reading a novel or a memoir. you'll You'll recall early in the book he's got a an advertisement that seems to be clipped. From uh, you know, a magazine of, of the 1950s for the, the family's uh, uh, scientific, Shaben Scientific. And it looks very real. It looks like an actual ad from, uh, from, from a magazine of that time. But at the same time, in his foreword, he's essentially saying, Well, you know, I've followed the truth as much as I could, but when I couldn't, I basically made it all up. And um, as a no- – since it seemed to be working very effectively as a novel and as a memoir, he-, he has all these footnotes about how he got his source material from talking to his grandfather who's very ill and dying. And Shaven writes, I was I, Michael Shaven was on my book tour for my first book and I stopped off to see my grandfather. Mm-hmm. So – I found myself resisting as I was reading it, finding out anything, like going online to find out, is this really a memoir or a novel? I wanted to leave that all for afterward. I I would say in my view, it works equally well. It is, in fact, a a novel disguised as a memoir. That's what it is. But when you're reading it, you you really can't tell. And I thought, hey, it kind of works as both.
2: Or a memoir disguised as a novel. Um, So – the other thing that he does – Julie, I know you got something else mm-hmm. to say but um, – and so say that too. But um, <laughs> yeah. the other thing the novel does, I think an attempt to kind of recapitulate or recreate the cognition of this failing man who's kind of lapsing in and out of memories and uh, awake and then asleep is it just zooms around in time like somebody's yep. just wildly operating a joystick. Which again can be either a virtue in the sense that it kind of does recreate this end-of-life cognition or a fault if it's driving people crazy.
3: Well, yeah. I mean – It, this is... Well, what I was going to say earlier is that, you know, in the last 15 or 20 years, a lot of memoirists have come heavily under fire for taking too many literary literary liberties with the way they tell their stories. So I really like this trend of like everybody saying this is a novel, but they're drawing from so much source material from their life that we're still getting the weird details of life, of real life. And there's details in this novel and perspectives that are just – they just – Glow. I mean, <laughs> not to hit too far back on the on the title there, but um, the, it just you feel this has to be real. Or if it isn't real, it's so close to life that he's done an incredible job imagining it. But yeah, I mean, it has that great memoirist perspective of jumping around in time and getting a sense <clears throat> of perspective and meaning from those jumps, rather than telling a straight line novelistic story.
2: So, Alex, I think in the Goldilocks world. Uh, of our final four, this book was kind of just right uh, for you. Um,
0: so tell me why you liked it. Well, I think part of it was simply, as you said, that structure, which in a novel could have been just a little too fragmented uh, to the point where you're you're struggling to follow the story, where you're, um, the characters keep moving around, the setting keeps moving around. But thinking of it in terms of a memoir, thinking of it in terms of this is an an elderly man, a dying man, and he's relaying his own memories through this sort of fractured structure. Um, And and anyone who has dealt with with an elderly relative or, or someone knows this feeling, knows this structure, the way we'll jump from, you know, 1940, New Jersey in one moment to Germany, to the 80s, to... Uh, you know, at the drop of a hat mm-hmm. um, and it – it he managed that very fine line of keeping that structure but keeping it – and this is perhaps where the novelistic element comes into – of doing it, of making the point of giving us enough uh, so that we – as a reader, we felt we understood these characters.
4: Just to orient people a little bit who haven't read the book. Um, It has a lot to do with the experiences of Shabin's grandparents or at least the people who are depicted as his grandparents, both of whose lives were severely impacted by World War II. One writer I was reminded of reading this was E.L. Doctorow because in novels like Ragtime, The Book of Daniel, Doctorow managed to have very personal stories that also intersected with very public history. And, uh, and, and that was part of Shabin's goal in, r- in writing this book, was to write what was on one hand a very personal family memoir, but you have characters wandering through this, this narrative, uh, Woody, Woody Guthrie, Wild Bill Donovan, and the lives of his family members intersect uh, haphazardly but very interestingly with, uh, with, with public figures. So it's very much about the way in which that colossal, Force of World War II as a world historical event scuttled, reshuffled, and changed people 's lives that 's been a huge theme that a lot of writers have handled very profitably mm-hmm. and and Shebin returns to it to it here and the way it impacted his family
2: so you guys are all voracious readers and literati, um, and so i 'm going to uh, bring up something you know from the rest of us, uh, which is <laughs> and I discovered, Julia. I'm not alone about this. So my absolutely favorite Michael Chabin Shab- novel was the one I didn't have to read. It uh, <laughs> was um – it was the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which I listened to as an audio book with no less than Peter Riegert uh, narrating it. And it was really terrific. and I loved it. And And there's a lot of other Michael Chabon books that I've started and never finished. And I, I know a bunch of other people <laughs> who started Michael Chabon books and never finished it. And I did find around page 280 of this that my gears were grinding a little bit. I couldn't mm-hmm. really figure out exactly what was happening, whether it was this constant uh, zipping around in time uh, or – or or maybe the refusal of the book, in my opinion, to pick a theme, you know, that it's sort of about a whole bunch of – it's about the exploration of space and it's about this rather peculiar love story between the grandparents and it's about dying and memory. And I, I was sort of like what – I don't know whether there's that or just maybe I have a lot of trouble reading the way he writes prose. I don't know.
3: Yeah. I mean I think that makes total sense. I've read two other of his books. I read Cavalier and Clay and The Final Solution, which is really short and a Sherlock Holmesian uh take on World War II. And the way that I... When I was reading this book, I felt like, oh, yeah, you know, he's not writing this book alone. Of course, it stands alone, but he is dedicating his life to this (laughs) exploration of these fine details of the second half of the 21st century. I mean... All of his books tackle – the themes aren't just in this book. They're throughout his work. So um, what it means to be Jewish, how World War II has rippled through throughout our, our lives now, as Rand brought up. And this is just a piece in a larger puzzle of his thinking and his work. But he, he's a very intellectual writer. He's a writer's writer. And the details can absolutely weigh you down and, for some people, slow you down. So this is a book that I would say you've got to be in the mood for. You know, just digging in, digging in and letting it kind of bury you oh. under its its weirdness and its prose.
2: I feel validated as a pinhead.
3: <laughs> <laughs> You're not a pinhead.
2: <laughs> you know, um, Rand, another writer that you compared this to is was Roth. And this does mm-hmm. – I don't know. It reminds me of American Pastoral in a way that I really can't exactly pin down but it's sort of – Once again, uh, maybe because it does explore themes of Jewishness and personal history and history all at once.
4: You know, I thought of this. uh, It's not really Roth light. It's sort of Roth soft. There are are certain lines that have a a mordantly ironic bite to them. He discusses the the lifelong strivings of a 'er ne'er-do-well uncle, Uncle Ray, who at one point opens uh, a a bar that is doomed to failure and he writes – in concept, the undertaking that is this bar combined elements of pipe dream, tax dodge, money laundering scheme and irretrievable mistake. The, the book is full of, of great zingy one-liners like that that often have a nice bite into human foibles and failings. But at other times, he's capable of a very affectionate and poignant and even elegiac take on, on, on love. Um, on the passage of time and he's nowhere near as tough as Roth. that's why I think mm-hmm. of this as 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 Roth uh, soft but he has he has some of the same virtues. It's so also, um, and there's a little bit of this in Roth. A hymn to uh, this. This book is a kind of hymn to oddballs. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a there's a real romance, not least of the grandfather, but um, you know, like his grandfather's war buddy, who's uh, Augenbaugh, who is writing, who's writing all the time as they're going through the sort of D-Day and the, and the and the devastation of war. He's 200 pages into the writing of an analytical biography of August K. Kule. I didn't even know. I have no idea who August K. Kule is. So there's this odd. Thing There's a sort of urban tracking that's, that's Roth-like, but uh, he's more easygoing.
3: I've got another zinger that I starred because I just thought it was so good. Uh, she was always threatening rain. He had always been born with an umbrella in his hand, describing right. the grandparents. And that line is so beautiful and perfect, but it's surrounded by these thickets of detail and weirdness and words.
4: Well, he quotes the grandfather saying, I'm giving you this story. It's all mishmash. You're going to take it, and then I want you to put it straight. Don't do it all mixed up yeah. like I'm doing. It. And then use those fancy metaphors of yours. <laughs> and 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 he does. He has a way with a fancy metaphor. I like it. Yeah. The, the, I mean, we do. Uh, Alex fall
2: in love with this grandfather to a certain degree. He's a very frustrating man and a frustrated man. I mean, in some ways kind of caught in a peculiar. Middle ground of the education and class system he 's probably smarter than most of the jobs uh, that he wound up having and more visionary and, and he 's also kind of an action hero and and towards the end um, towards the end chronologically of his life, one of the things we see him doing and this also is just an example of of shaven 's gift for the comic is um, hunt, hunting an alligator that 's eating the pets. Uh, <laughs> supposedly, uh, in this elderly
0: housing project, in which he finds himself, it it should be noted just how funny this book is. I'm not sure we've conveyed just how hilarious this Definitely. book could be. Um, there were there were so many points where I just started laughing out loud. Um, but I, I think, I mean, I think Rand, you sort of hit on on this book, sort of the themes of of what makes it work. And I think a lot of those themes are sort of there throughout his career. I mean, he's always He's always very much been interested in in World War II but also in multi-generational stories in the way that war and trauma play out and not in this this cold hard way but in this he is humorous he is kind of elegiac about it he he's not he sees life sort of in comedic terms, but he also
4: doesn't pull any punches.
2: All right, we have we have to move. Uh, we we'll. If we don't, i well, say it? one thing yeah. about
4: your comment. I agree with you. The book the book peters out mm-hmm. in in trying to grab something that's central. I think. Alter- and I won't give this away, but ultimately it's the revelation of the grandmother. What lies mm-hmm. behind, what suffering lies behind uh, a, a lifetime of, of strange behavior. And that's revelatory in a way that brings the personal and the historical together in the book. Right.
2: So that's um, Glow, and if you read it, you can you know, join other people who've read it in making skinless horse jokes. But if we make them now, <laughs> you, won't, you won't get any skinless horse jokes. But um, All right. So uh, in our bracket, um, Moon Moonglow is unfortunate enough to come up against what's probably the it book of the year. I don't know if if there's any book that's been more widely acclaimed and is more likely to be very shortlisted for uh, major literary awards that don't involve brackets. Uh, And that's Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. Uh, Let's just hear a a little piece of that. Also, again, I think we'll probably be hearing the beginning.
5: The first time Caesar approached Cora about running north, she said no. This was her grandmother talking. Cora's grandmother had never seen the ocean before that bright afternoon in the port of Ouida, and the water dazzled after her time in the fort's dungeon. The dungeon stored them until the ships arrived. Homian raiders kidnapped the men first, then returned to her village the next moon for the women and children, marching them in chains to the sea two by two. As she stared into the black doorway, Ajari thought she'd be reunited with her father down there in the
2: dark. OK. So this is kind of a pre-story. It's not the story of the protagonists of this book. They are two generations uh, down the line from Ajari. Uh, But it does begin to set up the brutal realities of slave life, which we are not spared at all uh, in this book. So, um, Alex, this book also probably has had the advantage – if that's the right word, of becoming more and more relevant since the time it was written, since the time it was put out. We're already talking about uh, new underground railroads for refugees who don't conform to executive orders. Uh, there's a way in which this book, in addition just to being
0: regarded widely as a literary masterpiece, has become more relevant. There is very much. Um, but at the same time, it's also not a realistic book and also a unique enough book that it's not – Um, because I mean, just to say, I mean, it opens in that manner. We're then introduced to life on a plant, cotton plantation in Georgia, uh, which people will probably recognize from, from culture, from history. Um, it is brutal. Whitehead never, without being gratuitous, Whitehead never shies away from the brutality of this. Um, and then Cora goes on the Underground Railroad. Which is not what it is in our world, it is instead she get they go to a barn, there is a trapdoor, and then they walk down a set of stairs where there are railroad tracks, and they get on a train right um, and what follows is uh, what a friend of mine described as a gulliver's travels like experience of. America, which of course I had to look up because I'm one of those people who has never actually read Gulliver's Travels mm-hmm. and only knows it from cartoons. <laughs> um, well, I have
2: so many responses to that, but I think I'll just sort – of <laughs> probably just move on. Um, so I don't know. Ray, just give me your overall reaction to this book. Uh,
4: I admire this book a great deal and <clears throat> I also found it very hard to put down. Mm-hmm. I read this book essentially at an extended single sitting. And and the one comment I had is that it's it's strange that a, a book that deals with such hard human realities should should be or could be this easy to read. Um partly the reason it's easy to read is it's artfully constructed to sort of keep the drama of her escape going. There actually are a lot of sort of page-turning chapter endings where you want to find out what happens next. What interests me perhaps most about it is that the novel is explicitly prophetic and didactic and he has a habit of using his, his characters to ventriloquize um, judgments, harshly, uh, c- coldly indignant judgments about race. and, uh, and For instance, the, the, the character of the slave catcher Ridgway, he's, he's used as a kind of stand-in for a sort of racist imperialist nihilism. Um, and uh, you know, here was the the true great spirit, the divine thread connecting all human endeavor. If you can keep it, it's yours, your property, slave or continent. The American imperative. I, I was struck by how a novel that is in some ways this didactic could be sort of this smoothly engaging. He's very, very skillful in the way he builds a novel around a set of, in, of indignant judgments about American history and yet gives you a very involving human story with a lot of well-rounded sympathetic characters at the same time. I, I admire That's not easy to do. You know, um, no, I just did the same thing I did to you last time. You're That's just okay. drawing breath this this thing.
3: No, you say what you <laughs> want to say. I, I love this book. Um, and I think, you know, Colin, you'd raise this question in our pre-discussions uh, on this. And I think this is the big question is why, why make the railroad mm-hmm. literal? Um, and what I love about this book, especially as we chug towards the end, is as it's described to her – It's like you get on the tracks, you wait, and then you get on whatever train passes by, and it sort of passively takes you wherever it's going. You don't have a lot of choices. You're on one track, even though there may be different cars over time. And this is about one character moving forward – even when every other character falls away. I mean, there's there's a number of dangling threads left where you think, oh, is this character gonna come back? Are we going to run into these people that she's looking for? But it's really about her solo journey moving forward, um, really up until the very, very, very last sentence. Um, and and that's why I think the railroad metaphor works so well. I mean if we think of a person moving through America on foot, um, they have a lot of choices. They have a lot of uh, places to go. But this really is so clear in its idea that forward, forward is the only way um, to freedom.
2: Um, so Alex, you know, at the beginning of your remarks, you said that this was – it begins as a kind of slave narrative that we're familiar with that we've seen before and by which you mean more 12 years a slave than – than Gone with the Wind, uh, yes. and but I think one thing that this thing did. Maybe I haven't read enough of this kind of book, but um, one thing that this, this thing did at the beginning that I've just never seen before mm-hmm. is really talk about the way slavery created a tremendous level of inhumanity uh, towards one another among slaves. Uh, I, you know, the, I mean, the, the the first world that you really encounter in this book is a world in which slaves are pitted against each other for s- tiny little plots of land, and and s- in which slaves rape other slaves. Uh, and I just hadn't I hadn't read that story before. It it was so obviously tinctured with the idea of when you put people in such horrible situations uh, where there's a sort of a zero sum game, but almost nothing in that sum. Um, you know, they become horrible, uh, and so so many of the slaves were horrible. I don't think I'd seen that story before.
0: No, that's that's not a story that's told a lot. I mean in part because – and I, I think this goes back to, to what we were saying. This is in some ways a very brutal book. Um.
2: Well, OK. So we are going to try to have to try to pick a winner right here. Um, I just also want to quickly observe – it's such a weird year because there was another book called Underground Airlines, which is also <laughs> not – a story of this kind, which I loved – um, it, but not at all a literal or historical retelling of the real Underground Railroad. So such a strange thing. All right. So there's three of you. That means we can obviously come – you can obviously come to judgments. Wow. So wow. Julia, what are you bringing into the next round?
3: Oh, boy. I got to go with Underground Railroad. I think it's – especially if we're thinking about people who read one or two books a year, if I'm going to recommend one mm-hmm. over of these two, I would recommend this one.
0: All right. Alex? Underground Railroad. Oh, I thought you were going to go Moonglow. I I have to – I have to go Underground Railroad uh, for reasons – well, I can go on about that
1: at length in the
4: last <laughs> right. round, but. Colin, it's a great moment in Underground Railroad. Remember when she has escaped and she is briefly employed in a museum yes, we have where to. where yeah. she plays in a living tableau mm-hmm. essentially to show white audiences scenes of African life in the passage and it's all cleaned up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm very struck by how Whitehead is able again and again to do allegorical things in the context of a of a Realistically convincing narrative. Th- this book has its eye on today. That scene is clearly about the the action of cleaning up our own history for white consumption. Mm-hmm. And he, he he scores these points again and again and again. That that said, the fact that you guys have both voted for and now uh, pushed this novel through. I'm now happy to vote for Moonglow. Um, uh, I I admire both books. Shaban for me, is one of those writers. He can just do whatever he wants to. Mm. And and sentence after sentence, he gives me something that I love. So I'll I'll vote for Moonglow.
2: All right. Two to one. uh, The Underground Railroad is into the finals. Tremendous cheering for the bleachers. We'll take a break and we'll come (laughs) back after this. All right, now we're back. <laughs> Okay, so we're back. This is our scaled-down tournament of books. And, you know, I feel like that doesn't sound good somehow. And it's true that our guests here, our literary mavens, they have so much unexpended reading power uh, this time because they typically read 16 books to get ready for this show or at least attempt to. Uh, but Rand Richards Cooper, a novelist and essayist and critic, Alex Dubin, a writer who frequently complains that the show spends too much time on television and not enough on books, and Julia Pastel, a writer and founding member of C.T. Improv and host of literary disco podcast. They're all here. They're, all they to do is read four books. I mean, they're sitting here scrutinizing their nails saying, you know, really, oh, come on, give us something hard to do. So <laughs>
1: um,
2: let's, uh, let's move on here. We now have a one book in our final bracket. That's The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Now oh, we're going to pit The Knicks versus Mr. Monkey. Um, so the, we'll begin with Mr. Monkey. Actually, why don't we begin with a little audio book from Mr. Monkey?
5: Prelude, a page from Mr. Monkey. Once upon a time, not so long ago, a scientist, and loving mother, by the name of Mrs. Jimson, said a tearful goodbye to her family in New York and went to study monkeys in Africa. There she became friends with a smart, friendly, playful, super cute baby chimpanzee she named Mr. Monkey. She and Mr. Monkey and Mr. Monkey's chimpanzee mom and dad "'spent hours tossing coconuts back and forth "'in their lovely jungle home among the trees "'that smelled sweetly of tropical flowers "'and the brilliantly colored birds nesting in the vines. "'All night, the full moon lit up the jungle "'like a baseball field. "'Sometimes, Mrs. Jimson wrote in her notebook. "'Sometimes, she sent home letters "'telling her family how much she missed them "'and how she had come to love little Mr. Monkey.' One night, evil hunters. Sneaked.
2: Well, you know where that's going. Um, (laughs) So this is the beginning of the book. It's kind of the origin story of Mr. Monkey. It doesn't really necessarily have all that much to do uh, with the story that unfolds. The story that unfolds is a story told from multiple points of view about, among other things, a children's musical uh, based on uh, the Mr. Monkey stories uh, and the person who is uh, playing the role uh, of the chimp's lawyer uh, and, uh, and, and lots of other things as well, I guess it's reasonable to say. Although I was sort of glad to have this at the beginning because, you know, it's obviously harks back to Cur- the Curious George stories. And the Curious George stories are now, like, if you read the original ones, they're really kind of colonialist <laughs> and crypto-racist and, yes. and very, and there's the sense in which Curious George's origin story, in a very gleeful and happy way, is kind of the story that begins under the Underground Railroad, too, <laughs> of somebody, <clears throat> you know, ripped wow. from the jungle and thrown <laughs> on a boat, you know, by some, you know, weird colonialist guy in the yellow hat.
3: What a tie. <laughs> right. What a tie-in. <laughs> that might have been a,
2: might, might have been a forced uh, piece of railroad track going uh, over mm-hmm. towards Mr. Monkey. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Mr. Monkey, I, probably, Julia, probably Julia resembles yeah. the other three books the least.
3: For sure. This is a satire, or I would say, at least it's a comic novel, um, that deals with a bad children's production of essentially this Curious George story and all the various washed-up or aspiring actors and stagehands within, um, as well as audience members, which I thought was a cool uh, turn. Um, but it is it is w- very strange at times. It is really silly and it kind of races through the minds of all these <laughs> various people, um, beginning with this actress who you know could have been somebody and is now playing Mr. Monkey's lawyer uh, <laughs> in this production. Um, yeah, so, so that's the book in a nutshell. I mean, I enjoyed it um, partially because I've spent some time in this world. Um, if you've ever done or seen bad... I'm trying, I'm
2: trying to remember what, thing, what world this is that you're talking about. <laughs> uh,
3: what world I'm talking about is bad community theater. Oh,
1: okay.
3: <laughs> um, so that is, I mean, I've been uh, a peripherally involved in productions like this. And due to that, I have some interest in, like, jerk child actors. And <laughs> um, there's the one hilarious line where one of the actors mm-hmm. is really happy that the production is closing. And she tries to only do productions that last, like, two weeks. <laughs> um, so those kind of things are, are comic and funny. Um, but it is essentially, in the end, a pretty light novel compared to the other three that we have going on.
2: I would just like to uh, clarify for the listeners that jerk child actors is not a spicy, slow-cooking way of uh, preparing child that's actors. That's
3: exactly what I meant. Oh, that's what you delicious. did. Okay, delicious. Dry they rub. are good.
2: All right. So, <laughs> so um, you know, Rand, I think one reason that this book wound up in our group of four is because it's by Francine Prose, who I think a, a lot of people who esteem good writers therefore esteem. And, and one of the things that you said as we were getting ready was, you know, any novel is basically spending time with a particular person. So how was that for you? you how did you and Francine get along?
4: So um, I, I like this novel. I'll just say up front, least, least of the four. Um, but it's, it's deftly and skillfully written. Uh, the, the, the identifying feature of this novel is a structural one. The way it proceeds is that in each chapter, we happen to meet uh, a tangential character who then becomes the point of view – character of the next chapter. So it's a sort of j- daisy chain narrative. And it almost seemed – when I was finished with it, I thought it's almost like that's what she was interested in doing, almost as if she she took this on it, – it, it seemed like a writing class challenge. Uh, and, and I wasn't sure other than that formal structural interest – what I was supposed to be interested in, except the sort of pervasive—a portrait of a pervasive sort of washed-out, jaded cynicism about things—which she gets some enjoyable comedy out of. Um, but uh, so, but I, you know, the other, the other three novels offered so much more. Um, in a, in a lot of ways, are important to me. Um, yeah. Well, I mean – and Alex, we've seen a little bit of
2: this structural structural style in other books. I mean A Visit from the Goon Squad does this a, a little bit anyway, taking a character who seems peripheral at one point and putting them in charge of a different section of the book. Um, is there – you know, how do you feel about what Rand said? Is there is there a there
0: there in this book? I don't think there is. I thought the structure w- – I loved the structure. I just honestly didn't care about the story. And I think part of – and one of the problems with that is also she keeps throughout the book referencing Uncle Vanya, mm-hmm. which is – I mean Chekhov's play, which is one of the the masterworks of like modern culture, uh, I mean at least to me. And, and the characters think that as well. And the problem is if you're writing about people who are experiencing sadness and disappointment and disillusionment and you keep referencing something like that, you – you inevitably come off, you know, looking weak. I, I was also just
2: going to ask. I haven't really ever read anything by Francine Prose. So if we weren't quite as crazy about about this, but we were excited to put a Francine Prose book on the list. Does anybody here have a recommendation or like a really great Francine Prose novel that one should seek out?
3: Not a novel, but – and this kind of gets back to the Uncle Vanya thing. Um, she has an incredible book. I think it's called it's something like Reading for Writers. Um, And how to read like a writer. How to read like a writer. Yeah, yeah. and it's all about close reading classic works. Mm -hmm. And each, each chapter is something like how to write a good crowd scene, and then she'll cut to Anna Karenina and break down every line. Um, And she's done a lot of interesting writing. Class type work, um, as as Rand is getting to. So you know she's a writer's writer, and that she's interested in the she's little piece of Critic and,
4: parts. and reviewer. That's yes. why I want to read this. I've actually yes. never read a novel. Ob- I've probably read a hundred reviews by her of other people's novels. I always think she's really smart. Yes, well, she, she is.
2: She got a rapturous review in the Times book from Kathleen Shine for this book. So. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with her being a critic. Uh, however, we've got to jump anyway. We've got to jump to Nathan Hill's The Nix. It's our, the final book in our final four. Uh, it's the book by this year's Enfant Terrible. Uh, everybody else comes in with a lot of baggage and track record. Nathan Hill uh, does not with this story. Let's hear a little tiny bit uh, from the beginning. If Samuel had known his mother was leaving, he might have paid more attention. He might have listened more carefully to her, observed her more closely, Written certain crucial things down, maybe he could have acted differently,
1: spoken differently, been a different person. Maybe he could have been a child worth sticking around for. But Samuel did not know his mother was leaving. He did not know she had been leaving for many months now,
2: in secret, and in pieces. She had been removing items from the house. All right, so uh, it really actually is. (laughs) <laughs> Terrific opening, uh, um, a very sad but also kind of strangely funny opening, which is very much, I think, uh, Alex. The way the book unfolds too, it's it. It probably has a little something tonally uh, in common with Moon Glow in the sense that we are often very upset and amused at you know
0: pretty much close intervals. And in that sense, I mean, it is related to Moon Glow in that it's about multiple generations. It's about how one's actions sort of translate over time, how they affect. Uh, one's children and other events. Um, I do have to say, though, I mean, if Mr. Monkey was the book, I think we were all universally unimpressed by. Uh, the Knicks is the novel of these four I felt was the most uneven. Uh, I felt I thought that there some of the book was exceptional, I mean, particularly for a first novel, uh, but a lot of it was also just very uneven. The tone jumped around. Um, yeah, in the in the end, I I liked the book, but my my feelings sort of kept jumping every fifty to hundred pages about what where I was. Yeah, I I
2: wonder. Where, I mean some of their – there is sort of a kitchen sink quality here, right? He's just throwing every idea he's ever had at you. Uh, but he's really good. You know, He's really good at throwing those ideas. He gets compared constantly all the time these days to every really good writer you can think of. And I think that's to Alex's point that you can pick 50 pages of this book that seem a little bit like Thomas Pynchon and another 50 pages that seem a little bit like Jonathan Franzen and so on. Uh, I don't know if that adds up to a good book or
4: not. The review in the Times, I think I read, described it sort of as a, combina- as a combination between Pynchon and David Foster Wallace. I thought that was very misleading. Both of those writers are much more formidable and difficult than this this book is. This this He is out to, to entertain. The David Wallace comparisons are because, as, as Alex said, he he tries so many different things. There's a gimmicky aspect to this book. It's a huge grab bag of, of tricks, uh, and he, he changes type fonts. There's a novel within a novel. There's second-person narration. There's one chapter with a dozen or so subheads that he describes the tactics that a cheating student uses against her professor. There's short chapters. There's long chapters broken into numbered vignettes, secret letters that are hidden for decades, five-page sentences of manic manic lyricism, story with instructions for the reader, turn the page. We get Allen Ginsberg's uh, Sex Life. We have Hubert Humphrey in the shower. Uh, so there's really, you know, there's a shamelessness to it. I will say I like this book a great deal, but for me the recurring experience of reading this book was he starts to do something, and I go, oh no, don't do that, I don't want that. And like, not that point of view, not that backstory. and then 15 pages later I'm like, yeah, you got me, you won me over. There is a quality of sheer exuberance to this book uh, that, that wins you over. Two other things I would say. The m- novelist this most represents to me is John Irving. John Irving has has poured a lot of public love over this book, and it's not surprising why. To the end of this book, we have this revelation of a whole bunch of Dickensian coincidences underlying everything. To me, that was not the strength of the book. I kind of lost patience with it at the end. To me, what I loved along the way were the very rueful and biting satires of, uh, for instance, a certain young kind of young male Americanness. You know, Game Boy. Lost in the in the in the virtual world. This is actually a better book about failure than Mister Monkey is, and a lot of it is about uh, very ruefully about failures, both personal, individual, and also sort of the degraded environment of American life, fast food life, things people eat, horrible places people spend their lives in.
0: Yeah, y- y-
3: I agree. I got to jump in though. Yeah. I mean, I see. I agree that it is ambitious and uh, joyful in its ambition, um, but in another sense. I was like, ugh, I've read this before. <laughs> you know, the first, the, the opening that we heard in the audiobook is amazing. I mean, it's so beautifully written. But then we get this, like, you know, totally eye-rolly, if you're like myself, 32, 33 years old, like, isn't, oh, ga- first of all, Game Boy is hilarious. Gamers. <laughs> Uh, like being lost in a virtual world, isn't that despicable? Aren't college students lazy and despicable? You know, I can't believe my mother left me because she had her own personality. It's just like, oh, uh, white boys. <laughs> That's really how I felt, especially Absolutely. this this college, college sequence where it's just like so degrading to this girl who's obviously an idiot. I mean, she's written as an idiot. Um, and that's funny in its way, but the girl it's also who's cheating. You mean yes, yeah. the cheating yeah. girl. Um, but it's also like, can we just try any other thing? Can we complicate uh, modern life? And it, it just seemed very disdainful of so many different aspects of modern life that I and I'm all for disdain, but. I think I'm a little bit over reading about college kids being dumb and gaming being a waste of time and et cetera, et cetera.
2: For that reason, although I really like the book. I mean I think because it is meant to entertain and I'm kind of lowbrow compared to you guys. But I, the, uh, the writer that reminded me the most of is Jonathan Franson because that's kind of right. what he does. Yeah. He yeah. has tr- – I, ha- I actually have a really good – which I'm not going to tell because it's so name-droppy. I'm going to so- sound like a jerk. But <laughs> I have a good John Irving and Jonathan Franzen story. You know, wh- But a lot of it was sort of about the way that Franson is just looking at life all the time saying that thing, that little detail – This little trope sums up everything that's wrong with modernity or whatever time period he's looking at and this guy has uh, I think that same kind of malarial gaze. Uh, on everything that, that, that he sees. Yeah, um, yeah.
4: In, in, and I like that, that that stuff that for me happens sort of in the margins of this very Baroque plot that he's gradually mm-hmm. unveiling. And I, and I kept sort of, you know, enduring that but liking the stuff. For, so when he describes a, a high school, I forget why his character is there. The high school has the look of a regional high-volume shipping facility, mm-hmm. industrial and mechanical and automated and apocalyptic. Now that sentence has all the virtues and some of the vices that that it, it, mm-hmm. it has a comic hyperbole, but it also has this this eye and ear tuned to a sort of grungy degradation of of American public places, and he's he's very good at that. I thought of this. I, I had to say I felt like an, a, an old, a pretty old guy reading this because this book seemed so. It's it was a young, it was an, an, a prankish, youthful, show-offy showoffy. Uh, And to me, very enjoyable novel. But I I think my enjoyment was not separable from the prospect of sort of being sophomoric again. There's a sophomoric quality. There's an over-the-top sophomoric quality to the antic humor of this novel. Make
2: America sophomoric again. All right. So we have to
4: pick um,
2: a a winner here. I feel whichever winner it is, it is essentially essentially a goat being staked (laughs) out. (laughs) <laughs> for the Tyrannosaurus Rex that is going to eat it uh, in the final round, we won't have very much time for the final round anyway. But uh, so, what are we going to pick? Okay, we'll go in this direction.
0: Uh, Rand, you go first this time.
4: The Knicks.
2: All right.
0: Uh- uh- I'll make the Knicks the goat. All right.
3: Sure. I'll do the Knicks, too, despite my deep eye rolls on sheer <laughs> ambition alone. <laughs> I, I like the fact there that the,
2: the young person was annoyed by the youngness of the book, and the, <laughs> the old guys kind of liked it. All right. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll have our thrilling conclusion, which you already know. <laughs>
3: Maybe I'm out on a limb here, but how surprised would you be if the man in the yellow hat turned out to be a white supremacist? Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fisher's favorite novel of 2016 was the one where a normal person got elected president. Our intern is Hazel Cologne. The part of Bill Curry was played by Joyce Carol Oates. Subscribe to the Colin McEnroe Show podcast on iTunes or any other platform. I have no idea what's on tomorrow's show because we're recording this inside a space-time vortex. And now... Back to Colin.
2: Yeah, I should say we're actually recording the show on March 21st. So if we fail to acknowledge things that have happened, like the you know, the Martian invasion of March 26th or, you know, Joyce Carol Oates' announcement that she's actually a man or something like that, anything that happened after March 21st, we, we don't know about that. Uh, so sorry. So here we are in the final round. <laughs> <laughs> it feels so anticlimactic. I clearly rigged up this bracket the wrong way. Something There were some – Failure here, or maybe Colson Whitehead's uh, The Underground Railroad is is really kind of the Tyrannosaurus Rex of the field. I should say that Michael Shaben's Moon in the tournament that we imitate here, uh, the Tournament of Books thing, it's already gone. I don't even didn't make it past the first round. Uh, so um, I, I don't know. I mean, is there Rand? You're good at sort of. I mean, I think we all know that The Underground Railroad is going to be everybody's choice o- over the Knicks. Is there a way we can talk about why that's the case?
4: Well, um, for for what it is and what it does, it seems an almost perfect effort, and and the the sort of streamlined and efficient perfection of that very interesting effort is brought into further relief by the fact that the other book is just sort of w- wildly over the top and, and tries everything and 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 has has hits or misses. To me, ultimately, what's interesting about Whitehead's book is that I, I tend to think of. Novel writing or the creation of art and indignant, indignant judgment as being somewhat strange bedfellows. I mean, you, you you can look at the history of novel writing and find exceptions to that, but generally it's it's true. Um, and and yet they are very much the 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 bedfellows that create this novel. And he and he pulls it off. Uh, uh, absolutely successfully. And even for that alone, uh, I say hu- huge kudos. Um, and uh, I-, I like the Knicks. If, if Moonglow had had been up against the Underground Railroad, that would have been a very tough call for me. Mm. But but my, my vote goes for Underground Railroad.
0: Mm. All right. We've got about two minutes left here. Alex, you, you want to offer a final observation? Here? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things about the Underground Railroad, I mean, without giving away too much plot, uh, she goes from state to state and each state is a very different place. Uh, a radically different place in a way that's not 1850. Hmm. Um, so we are going from a plantation with slavery to one state after another, which claims to have put slavery behind it, hmm. um, and we see how it has not. And in that sense, this is sort of a a fable like journey through the African American experience. Julia Basile, you get the last word.
3: I think that you know the, it's one thing to criticize the present present by mocking it and trying to satirize now, which is what the Knicks does. But to have the confidence to just present history as an indictment of the present is is masterful. And that is why this book is more relevant, even though it takes place 150 years prior to the Knicks. And that's why it wins.
2: All right, so uh, we are done here. Thanks so much to Rand Richards-Cooper, uh, novelist, essay, and, essayist, and critic Alex Dubin, a writer uh, who complains a lot about how we don't talk about books enough, <laughs> and uh, Julia Postel, uh among other things, the host of the Literary Disco Podcast. Go listen to that now, now that you know so much more about books. You know which book you have to go read, too. Which fly-